Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. Today, we're bringing you a US election and green recovery special. And we'll be joined by Professor Ed Barbier, Professor of Economics at Colorado State University and green recovery expert. I think the key message is that it's not about whether or not you believe in climate change and global environmental risks. The markets believe in it. And it's up to governments to respond to that. The markets want to bring in low carbon, greener options. They're investing in that. We could all do more to facilitate what the markets want. Welcome to this special episode of Green is the New Finance. Uh, Ryan, it feels like it's been a while. How are you? I'm actually really good, thanks. I feel like 2020 has finally picked up in these last few weeks. The coronavirus vaccine looks promising on the green finance front over here in the UK. We've had exciting announcements on a UK government green guilt, a new national infrastructure bank, and impending mandatory TCFD reporting. And of course, the news that climate change is back on the agenda in the US. Indeed. Um, Yeah, it's felt really positive since the Green Horizon Summit, actually. Um, Feels like the green finance industry has sort of been buoyed by the US election results. And we're going to be talking about why today. Uh, The final outcome is all but confirmed, but we are going to be looking at what President-elect Joe Biden has in store for us in his climate action or build back better plan and what that means for the US, the world and more specifically finance. That's right. And to do that, we'll be joined by Professor Ed Barbier. Ed is an environmental economist and a distinguished professor at Colorado State University and has been named several times amongst the 50 most influential thinkers on sustainability in the world. He's also consulted for various agencies over the years, including the World Bank and the OECD. And more recently, Ed published a report for the United Nations Environment Programme on the lessons learned from the 2009 stimulus packages, um, talking about what could be applied to 2020. And he should know all about the Great Recession because he also authored the UNEP 2010 work, A Global Green New Deal, Rethinking the Economic Recovery After the Last Crisis. So we're going to be asking Ed about green recoveries and the impact of a US green recovery on the world. Um, Because, you know, as the biggest economy in the world, the US has such a big influence on global climate policies. And as the second biggest emitter of CO2 behind China, positive changes made impact us all. And it feels as if there is a positive change happening at the minute. It really felt like climate action was central throughout the presidential race. And notably, the first presidential debate was actually the first time since 2000, since Bush and Gore, that a moderator had asked a question on climate change during a presidential debate. So evidence there of the shifting public attitude. And now Biden's plan is already receiving positive initial coverage. The climate action track has stated that if he goes ahead with the plan as it currently is, it would lead to a decrease in end-of-century warming of around 0.1 degrees Celsius versus the current business-as-usual scenarios. So there's still a way to go, but it's a step in the right direction. And very exciting. Let's hear more about that plan and bring Ed in. Hi, Ed. Thanks for joining us today, all the way from Colorado, to talk about Biden's climate plan and the impact on the global green recovery. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Helen. It's good to see you. 
Before we dive into what a Biden administration might mean for global climate goals, there's so much discussion of global green recoveries, you know, making sure COVID stimulus packages mobilise green infrastructure spending, develop green jobs. Um, yet shockingly, we have 16 of the G20 economies with stimulus packages that are net negative to the environment. Um, UK is actually among the four in the positive column, uh, but the US is deeply in the negative column at present. Um, Ed, you've been really vocal about what a global green recovery should look like, um, writing for the World Economic Forum, publishing several papers, and last month authoring a paper for the UN Environment Programme on the topic. So with, with all of that, what's your sense at present of the G20's ambition or commitment to a global green recovery? You know, Bearing in mind, 18 of the G20 economies are among the top 20 CO2 emitting economies in the world. Well, first of all, what the G20 is focused on in most of its stimulus uh, in 2020 it has been the pandemic. Already this year, the G20 has spent about $12 trillion on that, and uh, that's probably most of the stimulus that's happened this year. However, now economies uh, and governments are starting to think about how do we green the recovery and how do we do this? It's rather surprising that so few economies are, are, are moving in a green direction. And in my writings on, on building a greener recovery, uh, I have focused on three things that you need to do. Uh, first, we have to recognize that green stimulus is not enough. We need to think about a, a public spending and strategy that goes five to 10 years, not two to three years or one to two years, which is typical of a stimulus. Then secondly, we have to recognize that public spending is not enough. If we really are interested in building a greener economy, we need pricing reforms to complement the public spending. And then the third point that's very important is that all the spending that we've done during the pandemic has built up deficits and debt, particularly in G20 economies. So any uh, green recovery strategy needs to be workable as well as affordable. And that means that the pricing reforms that we use, whether it's moving subsidies or it's pricing carbon, um, the revenues need to help pay for the long-term public spending that we need to target for the green recovery. So speaking of green recoveries, let's jump straight into what Biden's stimulus plans will mean for not just US climate action, but global climate action. And of course, green finance, as we always like to loop it back to. Um, I must say first, though, personally, it's been refreshing from the UK to see climate change front and centre throughout the entire campaign and, and indeed since Election Day. But, Ed, obviously there's optimism and then there's action and there's what's actually achievable. It'd be good to hear your thinking around what a Republican Senate, but a Joe Biden administration will mean in terms of his plan. He said that he wants to get them back into the Paris Agreement on day one, and happily, that'll be something that couldn't happen without Senate ratification. But the wider aspects of his plan, will they just get stuck in the Senate? That's that's a really good question. Um, let me let me just step back and say what the Biden plan means if it comes into effect. It would be a complete reversal of the current Trump administration's approach to both stimulus uh, and recovery. Up to now, the U.S. during 2020 under the Trump administration has spent about $2 trillion plus on, on stimulus during the pandemic, but really only $26 billion, uh, just over 1% of that, is, could be called green. Biden's plan would completely reverse this. 
So Biden's plan would involve $2 trillion over his four-year first term administration. And that would put the United States from being one of the laggards when it comes to a green recovery to one of the, 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 the top economy, well beyond even the European Green New Deal in terms of spending on green recovery. Um, so that's what the plan would do. Now, your other part of the question was the political reality of whether Biden will get be able to do this. And I think that um, what will probably happen is we'll end up with a Republican Senate. And as a result, uh, Biden will have to compromise on some elements of his plan. I also think that the Republicans will have some pressure to be slightly greener. And, and it looks from Biden's plan that, that uh, the administration plus the House of Representatives in Congress, which is controlled by the Democrats, will require green stuff in it. Now, the question is how much, and I suspect what will come out of it will be something more like green stimulus that we saw during the last recession. Predominantly, it'll be a standard traditional fiscal package with a lot of short-term green stimulus and some of the more exciting aspects of Biden's plan will, will be dropped. Um, but I do think there will be green stimulus in the U.S. I just think it'll be probably more like 10% of the overall stimulus package, not a complete stimulus um, uh, that Biden has. On the other hand, if there if I'm wrong about what happens in the Senate and we have a Democratic uh, controlled Congress in both houses, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate, then I think it's very likely we'll see something like the Biden plan come, come forward. So you mentioned that the headline figure, the $2 trillion that Biden plans to spend over the next four years. Just for the benefit of the listeners at home, would you mind explaining some of the key parts of the plan? Yes, I think there's some really interesting elements in it. So um, he he is combining in his plan, Biden is, um, a, a range of short-term and more long-term. So even though the plan is uh, $2 trillion over just four years, um, the overall goal is still the same, which is to have 100% clean energy economy and net zero emissions no later than 2050. Um, and in the plan, he has a whole bunch of specific elements. Uh, there is a push for fuel-efficient cars, new vehicles to be 100% electric or zero-emission vehicles, um, energy efficiency in buildings, new building codes. There's going to be uh, regulation on methane pollution for oil and gas, regulations for insurance, coastal restoration. Um, and now to some of his more long-term investments. Um, there's talk in the plan of putting money, although there's no figures I could see, on upgrading the electric grid for clean energy. There's going to be a lot on cleanup of waste and pollution, so cleaning up after the brown economy. And there's going to be uh, investment in sustainable agriculture. One of the things I find very attractive about the Biden plan is there's a, a specific commitment to spend $400 billion over the next four years, so $100 billion a year, in public support for private clean energy innovation. We underinvest in green innovation in our country, in the United States, but so does every G20 economy. So those are the main elements I see. There's, there's a lot of public spending and a lot of it's targeted to, to really important areas of our economy. Great. We'll come on to some of the um, sort of details in, in a bit more detail, if you will, in, in a moment, especially around innovation and this need to have sort of more long-term um, stimulus rather than just short-term. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, during the Great Recession, um, you were asked by UNEP to devise their global Green New Deal, um, which was a, 
essentially a recovery plan for the world economy in line with environmental and social goals. And I know since then you've published a lot of research about the lessons learned from what those stimulus packages were and the impact they had or didn't have, because, um, you know, as we all know, emissions increased um, since then. Do, do you get the sense, um, and just sort of hearing you talk about the breadth of the plan, do you get the sense that some lessons have been learned um, specifically to, to this plan? I wonder if you could sort of share with us what the key differences are between between Biden's plan and, and the Obama stimulus package under the 2009 Recovery Act? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the U.S. green stimulus uh, during the Great Recession, which was 2008-2009, the U.S. spent um, about uh, $120 billion on green stimulus just over that, that two-year period, 2008-2009. Some of that spending lasted till about 2011, but it was short-term. Whereas one of the first points I made is that if we want a green recovery, we have to go beyond green stimulus to more long-term spending. Um, and uh, the second key thing about the green stimulus during uh, in the United States, but in all G20 con- economies pretty much, uh, almost half of the green stimulus was on energy efficiency, which was really important for short-term stimulus and job creation and to support the construction industry, which is so vital to a recovery in a recession. But one of the problems is that uh, if you again focus on the short term, you're not going to make the longer term investments. There was some investment in the United States to support the renewable energy industries, um, but it wasn't really a wholesale spending. And there was no um, research and development that supported long term development of batteries or charging networks for cars. But the perhaps the biggest missing element in both the green stimulus during Um, the Great Recession and in the Biden plan is pricing reform. If we're committed to a long-term green recovery, we need to have pricing reforms to get the market incentives right so private investors can invest in long-term green uh, technologies and so they can also innovate. And um, the markets want to have clear signals on carbon and pricing. And at the moment, there is a brief mention of pricing mechanisms, but no commitment, clear commitment to uh, carbon taxes, uh, uh, which are missing in the United States. So when we read your report and then immediately followed it by reading Biden's plan, this was really the bit that jumped out at us, that there wasn't an explicit mention of a carbon tax. Can you share with us why that's so important and also why it's perhaps challenging to introduce in the US the political um, barriers as well? Well, the, the reason why carbon pricing in particular, but pricing of a lot of environmental bads uh, is so important, is that if we want long-term sustainable recovery, a green recovery, we need to change those market forces that are working against the recovery. And right now we have two. Uh, One is that um, fossil fuels are subsidized. But in addition to that, we have all these huge costs of fossil fuel use in in the form of Um, climate change that is already upon us. And secondly, in terms of pollution and congestion of cities and all the the health and uh, safety costs costs of of using fossil fuels. And those type of costs are are huge damages that the, the society is paying for, but the people who produce, use, and consume uh, fossil fuels are not. And so by pricing carbon, we level the playing field between using low carbon options like clean energy and fossil fuels. The second reason um, we need to do something about pricing is innovation. 
is that uh, if you make investments today and you want to innovate today, um, you need to know what prices will be in the future and what's the rate of return on investing in uh, clean energy options as opposed to browner options. So the markets need to have these price signals. And if governments do not um, facilitate that, then they're actually holding back the innovations we need by the marketplace and by private investors in innovation that we need for a green green recovery. The other reason that we need to have um, uh, pricing of carbon and removal of subsidies is that uh, unlike the Great Recession, G20 economies have spent 12 to $13 trillion already just dealing with the pandemic. That is highly expensive to our economies, a huge amount of borrowing by governments, our debt is piling up. I have seen at least one estimate that shows that by 2022 or 2023, the cumulative debt in the world from this could be 30 trillion going upwards. So if we want to invest in green uh, spending, we need to make it affordable and pricing reforms will generate the revenues to help us. Yeah, noted on why it is incredibly important. So I think then quickly, what is it that's currently stopping it getting through? The problem is in uh, the United States, um, any kind of taxation is considered to be a bad thing, regardless of whether or not there's a valid reason to it or not. Just taxation alone is, is, has been politicized. Now, that's not happened at the state level. So we do have states such as California and some northeastern uh, economies, Colorado and others, where you have... Uh, very much interest in using uh, carbon taxes and also other type of pricing. And I think what might happen in the United States is that uh, there may be less discussion at the national level, but these local, uh, statewide and uh, uh, citywide initiatives will start to grow. And as the United States becomes more familiar at that level and the schemes seem to work and they generate revenue and the revenue starts to be used in a very socially equitable way, then I think there'll be more and more pressure. This is sort of what happened in Canada. And now, of course, uh, Canada is moving to a national scheme. And I think that will happen. Uh, but I think uh, to start with, I think the Biden administration is going to be cautious about a, a federal and national approach because there's just not the political will. So essentially, we're saying it's it's political will and an issue of semantics. I mean, you mentioned Canada. There was a famous clip where Trudeau was pushing through his carbon pricing and accidentally says tax, and the opposition party all, all <laughs> jeered. And if it's an issue of semantics, how do you think we can we can combat that? Well, the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development has never in its history used the term tax. They use charge. Uh, and there are other semantic ways you can sugarcoat it. And But I think more importantly, I think that um, demonstration matters more. If you start to see states adopt the policy, um, uh, which they will, and you start to see it work and you start to see it generate the revenues to pay for um, um, financially stretched budgets at the state level, then it starts to resonate. And that's certainly what's happened with Canada. And I think it's become more acceptable in Canada. I think we'll see that here too. That's really exciting to think there's going to be sort of more um, regional carbon markets potentially in the US, um, even if it, if it does take a while. Um, I wanted to circle back to talk about fossil fuel subsidies. Um, as, as you mentioned, those um, uh, 
Biden has said that the US will demand a worldwide ban on fossil fuel subsidies. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but I think conservative estimates put US fossil fuel subsidies at about 20 billion um, a year. Um, so if the US stopped subsidies, what kind of impact could that have? Um, and certainly that signaling, what could it have to sort of um, influence the globe or on fossil fuel subsidies? Again, let's go back to the Great Recession because uh, we've been there before. Mm. Uh, during the Pittsburgh G20 summit uh, in 2000, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania G20 summit uh, in 2009, uh, President Obama tried to push for um, removal of fossil fuel subsidies by the entire G20. In the end, uh, that did not happen, although some, all the countries agreed to it in principle. Um, since then, only a handful have done so or made some moves in that direction. So it's not easy to get all countries to agree to removal of fossil fuel subsidies because they're so ingrained uh, in our economies. Uh, and there's a huge lobby that obviously will lobby against it, which is the fossil fuel lobby. And thirdly, they're very much hidden. So in the case of the United States, it's clear that subsidies um, are at least nine to $10 billion a year, but I've also heard the $20 billion figure, but it's very difficult to measure that, how much, uh, how much the subsidies actually are. Generally, uh, studies have been done at the level of the International Energy Agency, the World Bank, to make estimates of how much uh, globally we're spending on fossil fuel subsidies. It's quite a lot uh, in, in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And if we remove just those subsidies globally, and particularly by the G20, which account for probably 75 to 80 percent of those subsidies, if we remove those subsidies, we could reduce greenhouse gases by two to five percent per year, depending on, of course, your estimates of subsidies. And these are pretty conservative estimates of fossil fuel subsidies. So the gains are there. And I think this gets back to Ryan's earlier question about the Paris Agreement, which is that if the United States under the Biden administration immediately joins the, the Paris Agreement, that means it's back in the ball game of negotiating and discussing with the world as to how do we achieve those climate targets. And, and I think the Biden administration is signaling that removal of fossil fuel subsidy is low hanging fruit to start yeah. doing that. And I think that's a positive thing. Also, it gets back into the conversation of saying pricing reforms is part of this solution. And that's something Europe is so much farther ahead than the US right now, um, which is ironic because the US has always prided itself on being market oriented, yet here we have a market oriented solution and the US is lagging behind. But I think under the Biden administration, we'll see movement towards it. Absolutely. So we've covered the fossil fuel subsidies, we've covered carbon pricing. And in your report, there are three main tenets. And the third one we've already touched upon is green innovation and green R&D. So you rightly emphasized why R&D is critical. And Biden's plan includes establishing an advanced research projects agency focused on climate or an ARPA-C, I guess, you know, in line with DARPA and ARPA-E back in the day. And a $400 billion um, budget of funding into clean energy research I think the question here is, do you think that is enough? It's large numbers, but is it enough? Yes. Um, my concern is not, um, is it enough in the four years? I think it's a, it's a good place. My concern is twofold. First of all, um, what exactly is the, the key areas that he's going to target with, with it? And he's, uh, Biden's plan has mentioned batteries, but I think there's 
uh, and also possibly the smart grid um, innovation. Uh, um, and I think those are two important areas. But I think that there's other areas that are also important. One is charging stations for uh, cars, electric cars. And I think the other one is the development of public transport, uh, particularly rail networks. That's in the Biden plan, but it's not clear how the innovation is going to support it. So so the issue really is um, um, more details on what exactly that money is going to be spent on. The second issue is... Uh, this is a long, should be a long-term commitment. It should not be just a commitment for four years. Innovation um, needs to keep going. We're only just starting the, the transition. And to put it in perspective, right now we are using about 10% of our energy is from clean, clean sources. Maybe we're heading towards 20%. We need to innovate considerably more because we need to reduce the cost of getting that next 20% of renewable. So we get up to 40%, then 60%, then 80%. And each time the costs are going to be more expensive. But unless we have innovation in all areas of the economy, not just in clean energy, but in new processes for, for some of the dirty industries, whether it's cement or iron and steel or whether it's machineries and so forth, we need to move from just thinking of just about clean energy of being the only green sector and to think about how do we green the entire economy and how do we do this routinely and um, and so that we can make the, the jump. And that's going to take a long-term commitment. So I hope that anything that the Biden administration does car- carries on and that there are, there's more uh, uh, innovation, public support for R&D that goes on. We, we've seen that with the development of other things, nuclear and fossil fuels. We need to do this more systematically and sustained uh, in both the United States and in other G20 economies. Absolutely. Um, from a private capital and investor's point of view, it's all about longer term certainty. And it's interesting that you touched upon a few technologies. And I think despite some of the shortcomings from the green stimulus after the Great Recession, one of the lasting legacies from a private capital point of view was the large scale up in wind and solar energy. Until then, they had been mainly financed through bank debt. But then in the early 10s, you saw through support from policies that came about from those green stimulus measures, many new entrants to the market, pension funds, hedge funds, and other institutional investors. Some of the technologies you mentioned here, you know, batteries, smart grid, do you see them being the next candidates to capitalize on the markets the same way that wind and solar did? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think for two reasons. First of all, we're now talking about technologies that go cut across different sectors. So as I mentioned before, battery breakthroughs are going to be essential, not just for uh, storage of uh, energy for electricity from solar and wind, but also it's going to be essential for the, uh, the electric car revolution. Uh, we need huge breakthroughs in our battery technology, and it cuts across. Um, similarly, we need to have uh, breakthroughs in our materials and uh, uh, sectors and machine tools, uh, iron and steel, cement, some of the, 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 the bread and butter industries of our existing economy. Um, and then we also need to think about uh, changes in our transport system. Do we keep the existing highway system? Do we move to a different type of, of, of system? Uh, and if we exist, if we build cars and transport systems, and so these are things that are long-term investments. But let's be clear, 
The point of government investment is to invest in what government does best, in those goods that only in services that government provide. They're not to replace the innovation that takes place largely in the private sector. As you alluded to, Ryan, the financial sector is already starting to make bets on low carbon options now. What they want to see is whether the government is going to support those necessary public infrastructure and green research and development long investments long term to allow those low carbon options to break through so that there is a, a financial uh, incentive to make those long term investments. So tying this in with sort of developing new technologies and this this need to start crowding in private capital um the plan mentions the mobilization of private capital uh, with very little detail on what that that means um you know national green banks are in vogue again at the institute where we're strong believers they're a great way to crowd in private finance and um, the UK's Chancellor Rishi Sunak recently announced they will be creating a new national infrastructure bank uh, and the EU is said to be looking at climate bank too and we've published a paper recently with um, Rocky Mountain Institute and the NRDC on this very topic so we're kind of excited to see whether the US might follow with a national climate bank as a means to you know crowd in private capital de-risk some of these technologies Um, what do you think the chances are of of us seeing a national green bank, a national climate bank, a federal climate bank, whatever we're going to call it for the US? I think it's going to depend on a number of things. Uh, I don't think that creating a national climate bank will be a top priority of the Biden administration unless it has the Federal Reserve on board and also the private financial sector, Wall Street. Uh, and particularly if that latter group is pushing for it and says, we need this, then that's uh, what will happen. Um, an interesting parallel goes back to the Great Recession, where um, the Great Recession was preceded by a major financial collapse. And it was the major players in the, the financial industry, plus the Federal Reserve chair at the time, Ben Bernanke, plus the Bush administration, then Obama administration that says, what do we do about this? How do we do this in a way that, that gets the, the, the financial sector back on its feet? Now, this is not a crisis per se, but I think um, moving in this direction would be such a major policy shift that we would need all three actors again involved in some way to decide we want and we need a national climate bank or a national green bank uh, in, in the United States. And then the final thing I'll say is that it's very possible that we could see a, a, a private initiative. Uh, and that may be very possible. Uh, in, in fact, they, uh, through venture capital and other mechanisms, were very much responsible for a lot of the subsequent clean energy investment that occurred um, immediately after the Great Recession and in response to the green stimulus. I'd love to just quickly build slightly on, on the, um, the, green climate, the National Climate Bank. I'd love to hear your views on whether it would be effective. I mean, in the, in the United States at the minute, there's 15 green banks at the state and city level, and they've achieved a, um, a crowding-in ratio of for every $1 of public money spent, it's crowded in $3.60 of private capital. So that's that's impressive. And so outside of the political will and the private will that you mentioned, do you think it would be beneficial for the sorts of technologies that we've been talking about under the Biden plan? I think that 
the way the United States system works, and indeed the whole economic system works, is that it's, it's a much more decentralized approach. The next phase is always then consolidation and scaling up. So the United States is a bottom up, particularly with its financial market and its, its economic system, is that we start at a smaller scale and more regional, more local. Uh, if it starts to work, then you start to see consolidation, you see big players come in, and then next thing you know, you, you have de facto a national system with uh, several players involved. And that may be not answering your question fully, but I think what we could see is come out of this system, if it continues to be a successful at that decentralized level, a scaling up to something that approximates more uh, a private uh, type of initiative, but is still national in scope. And I think that answers the question perfectly. Uh, at the Green Finance Institute, we're all about how we can mobilize the private capital into these green areas. And that's essentially what you've said there. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Um, so I think we're running out of time, but we have just uh, one last question before we wrap up. And that was, you know, we've talked about financing green and um, at the Institute, we, we also talk about greening finance. So a few weeks ago, the Federal Reserve announced that they're going to be joining the Network for Greening the Financial System, NGFS, uh, which is a network of central bankers and supervisors that are working together since 2017 to align global finance with Paris climate goals. Um, arguably, US financial institutions have been behind European institutions when it comes to green finance. And some of that has just been through sort of lack of messaging coming out on the regulatory front or from, from the central bank. So I just wondered specifically around um, this decision by the Federal Reserve, wh what do you think that might mean for US financial financial institutions and might we see a more competitive global playing field in sustainable finance now? Well, I think the U.S. is, is going to have to. Uh, and the same thing is happening. It's parallel to what's happening in the U.S. economy in general. And I have all, always argued, uh, as I have in my report, that what we're facing here is a green race. Uh, economies are uh, are, are vying for dominance and control of major clean energy markets and technologies, including technologies in um, revolutionizing brown processes and making them greener. And the United States is falling behind. And the same parallel is happening with green finance. The banks in the United States, because of the lack of um, a, a clear signal from both the Federal Reserve, but most recently uh, in the last four years from the um, Trump administration, uh, they're falling behind. They're not making uh, the jump that needs to be made to, to, to pushing for green finance. They're finding themselves well behind the curve, which is being driven in Europe and including in Asia. Uh, and so I think the United States um, needs to see that both from the financial side and from the economic side, a green recovery um, is essential. It's an economic proposition, not just an environmental one. Mm. Well, hopefully um, a Biden administration, as you say, will allow them to make bolder moves. Um, Ed, it's been so great having you on dissecting Biden's climate plan, what it's going to mean for the planet, US, for green finance. Um, thank you so much. Uh, we wondered if you if you could leave us with one, just one key message that you think the world's economies should follow to ensure we do really build back better, what might it be? I think the key message is that it's not about whether or not you believe in climate change and global environmental risks. The markets believe in it. And it's up to governments to respond to that. The markets want to bring in low carbon, greener options. They're investing in that. 
And in the United States for the last four years, we've stand, stood in the way of that type of progress. And that's true for many G20 economies. We could all do more to facilitate what the markets want, which is a greener and low carbon option. What a, what a note to end it on. It's not about what we think about climate change. The markets believe it, and that's, that's all that matters. Ed, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Um, we've covered all sorts of ground. And all I could say is let's hope that all this optimism that we are currently exuding is not misplaced in the Biden administration. So, Ed, thanks once again for joining us today. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, Ed. So, Ryan, is Ed right? Do the markets know climate change is real? What do you think? Well, I would definitely say so, yes. Um, We've passed the point where climate action is solely for those with a green conscience. And it's now also just sound economic and business sense. Anyway, Helen, I've been dying to ask you throughout the interview, from all the various pledges in the Biden plan for climate change, did you have a particular favourite or one that you thought would be the most important? Well, I'm really excited about this demand to the end of global fossil fuel subsidies, I will say that. But one thing I did mention was the Civilian Climate Corp, which uh, I was really excited to see in Good the choice. plan. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's um, for those listening who don't know, it's an initiative to mobilize a workforce for conservation and climate resilience, managing forests, restoring ecosystems, building hiking trails and biking trails. Uh, what about you? What was your favorite? I absolutely love the CCC. And as we've discussed previously, it's a clear analogy to Roosevelt's New Deal CCC, which was obviously so successful. Um, From a background in investment banking and renewable energy, the 2035 clean power sector target gets me excited. But my top one is one that's not grabbing all the headlines, but it's the Task Force on Coal and Power Plant Communities. This is looking to ensure a just transition for communities currently heavily dependent on fossil fuels, which is critical. They can often feel forgotten and they need to be supported through the transition. Yeah, it was such a such an important one. I'm glad you mentioned that one. And actually, you know, Biden's plan has really built a just transition in. Um, let's just hope it it gets through. <laughs> it comes to fruition. Let's hope, let's hope it yeah, let's, let's hope it gets through and hope it delivers. <laughs> and inspires us all. Um, so that's about all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us as always. And if you want to hear more, then do please hit subscribe. We have an exciting roster of guests lined up to take us into the new year and you do not want to miss it. Indeed, you can join me next time. I'll be with Deborah Lair, Vice Chair at the Paulson Institute that was set up by Hank Paulson, former US Treasury Secretary, to focus on US-China relations. And we'll be talking about China's green recovery, its climate policy, and also the work of the Paulson Institute on green fintech and biodiversity. And after Deborah, we'll be bringing it back to the UK and closing out the year with two fantastic guests. First, we've got the Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Kwasi Kwarteng. And then to finish the year, film director and Make My Money Matter founder, Richard Curtis, with whom we'll be discussing how we can all green our pensions. Super. Looking forward to all of that. So thank you all for listening to Green is the New Finance. We'll see you again soon. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.